Hi, everybody. Will you join me in the book of Luke, chapter 3? Tonight, I'm going to look at a passage that you will be reading in this week's devotional guide, Advent for Everyone, Luke by N.T. Wright. Get it, get on it, and you get a head start because I believe this is Tuesday's passage. But our theme in our devotional this week is a time for encouragement. And if you're like me, you could use some encouragement, I bet. So let's look tonight at how we might be encouraged in our story and in our identity. We're going to see in Luke chapter 3 both a genealogy and a baptism and how we might be encouraged in our story and our identity. But before we get going, let me say a word about encouragement in general. I just feel the need to say this, because if you haven't already or haven't lately, talk about how you're talking to one another. Whoever your one another is in your own household, in your coming and going, talk about how you're talking to one another in your own circles, whether that's your kids, your spouse, how are you talking to one another? Because our story in 2020 has been rough enough as it is. Our identity, who we are, what we do, our own anxiety and depression and our loss of work and security and relational connections, all of that has taken enough as it is. So could we talk about how we're talking to one another and make a commitment to build up and lift up instead of tear down and wear down one another. So as we enter into this week, a time for encouragement, can we talk about how we're talking to one another, make that commitment to lift each other up, and also I want us to be encouraged in our own story and in our own identity tonight. So let's get into it. Luke chapter 3. I'm going to read about Jesus's baptism. And yes, I'm going to read every name in Luke's genealogy. Yes, I'm going to mispronounce some. It's just going to happen. I've read it a couple times and every time it's a little different. So you're going to get some hilarious pronunciations. But here's the thing about those names. Remember, these are real, everyday people. These are people that mattered to God and mattered to God's people. And they matter to Luke because we're going to get into in just a minute why he chose to write down these names. And though some of them are unknown to us and unknown to scholars that look back at this text, they were known by some of the people that heard this. you imagine how it might have felt? Oh, I know that name. That's my great-great-great-grandfather. Oh, I see. Jesus is connected to that person and this person. These are names that matter to God and God's people. And I hope in the next few moments, you'll see how they can help encourage you and your story and you and your identity. Let's get into it. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. 
with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosem, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amenadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say thanks be to God because I made it through that list. These are real names that matter to God and God's people. It's part of their story. So let's get into part one. How can we find encouragement? How can you be encouraged in our story? And the question that we're going to really focus our attention on is what is Luke telling us with this genealogy? Shout out to those of you who have an account with Ancestry.com, who have sent out your swab with 23andMe. Those of you who have, like so many other Americans, a renewed interest in where we come from, what's our family tree, what is our family like? Because if you're like me, you may not be able to go back very far in your great, great, greats. So we have all of this new technology at our disposal for those who are interested in learning where they come from. But you need to understand that for those in Jesus' day and in antiquity even before that, their genealogy was not just something that was an interest, it was something that was vital for at least two reasons. The first is that it established them in a real tangible, practical level in their own family line. This is my tribe. This is my inheritance. This is my place in the earth. I need this legally to root me and establish me in this little place in this family. But the second thing it did was more theological, more national. It rooted them, connected them to God's age-old promise. And that's especially important when you belong to a nation that was constantly threatened. Can you imagine how 
powerful and personal the books of First and Second Chronicles, as we call them, would have been. Those lists of names, those tribes, those people, it rooted and established you even in the face of exile. It was your home when you were far from your homeland. You were able to point back and say, I belong to a people bigger than me, and I'm connected to the promise of God in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on and on down the list. It wasn't just an interest. It was vital, connecting them to the promise of God. So what Luke is doing and why Luke is writing this genealogy is to connect Jesus to that broader people and promise of God. If you look at Matthew's genealogy, you'll notice a couple differences. One, in the direction their genealogies travel, but also names and how this thing works. Because these genealogies are selective. They're telescopic. They're trying to zero in, narrow their focus on why and how they're connecting Jesus to the people and promise of God. Luke has his reason for including who he's including. Matthew has his reasons for including who he's including. But both of their end game is the same. Connecting Jesus to the people of God to show that he is not only a true Jew, but he is Israel's true king, which means he's the true king of the whole world. Which is why Luke includes a who's who of prominent figures in Israel's story. Man, we've got Noah. We've got some of those other names that you would have remembered from reading the Old Testament. But I want to highlight three of them as to why Luke is telling us this genealogy. The first is David. He's connecting Jesus to David's royal line. We just wrapped up another section in the book of Acts where repeatedly the apostles of Jesus are connecting him to David. This is the rightful king, even though he was crucified. He is the royal promised heir to David's throne. Another name that Luke mentions is Abraham. He's connecting Jesus to the national promise that Israel will be blessed to be a blessing to all nations. And Abraham is the one, the patriarch, that started it all. He's connecting Jesus to Abraham, the figurehead of the national promise to be a blessing to all nations. But Luke takes it a step further back in time. And he name drops Adam. Because if you're going to drop a name, dude, drop Adam. Because that's an awesome name. He connects it all the way back, not just to the beginning of Israel's story, but to the beginning of humanity's story. He's not just connected as a king for Israel. He's a representative of all humanity. You see, in Jewish thought, Adam was the figurehead, the representative for all those who would come back. So Paul, who comes later in the story in Acts, talks in his letter to the Romans about how in Jesus there's a new Adam, a second Adam, to undo what was undone in the first. So Luke is connecting to all humanity. This is the true king of the world. 
Also, these other names, it's a mixed bag of the good, the bad, the ugly, and even the unknown. Kind of like our stories, am I right? Kind of like our genealogies, am I right? We are the living, breathing apex of a pyramid of all the family that's come before us, real everyday people trying to make sense of their lives in the broader story of the world. And here we are, the sum total in certain respects, you don't have to be that egotistical about it, but we are a point in history that is shaped by all those names, all those stories that have come before us. The challenge for those of us at the tippy top of that pyramid is to what degree that story and those names, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the unknown, what degree did that, do those stories shape our story? I was recently made aware of this a couple years back when we were going through some counseling. I was going through some counseling to sort out some of my own anxieties and some of my own issues with my identity and my story. And because I was working with a licensed marriage and family therapist, he's all about how these family systems, the pyramids, shape us and affect us. And he used that image, not of a family tree, but of the pyramid, because he said there is a certain degree of choice that you have if you imagine yourself as the end of some of this story. The choice you have is to invert that pyramid. You have the choice to set the tone for those who come after you. And this can be beyond your biological family. You can be, exist beyond the progenitor of your own children. This is your choice in your life, in your identity, in your story, in your circle to say, I choose to speak this way. I choose to love that way. I choose to lean forward in that direction. You have a choice to a certain degree to set the tone in the new pyramid that is forming and fanning out as to how you will serve, how you will love. Are the arrows going to be pointed inward to me and what I can attain and I can amass at the expense of all others? Or are the arrows going to be pointed outward as we talked about last week? in service and love of God and others, because a life in service to God and others is a life well lived and the only life for the follower of Christ. You may be the first in your family pyramid to follow Jesus, invert the pyramid. You may be the first to choose to speak words of blessing and encouragement, so start your new pyramid. The big idea I want to share with you is this. Our story thus far doesn't have to dictate the whole story moving forward. We can invert the pyramid for those who come after us.
Jesus is the apex of a pyramid with all its own expectations and nationalistic dreams and desires. And he, who is the apex of where the story was headed all along, is going to invert it in such a way that not only upends all the expectations they ever dreamed of, but in a way that fans it open to the divine desire that God had always intended. It was baked within the stories of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Micah and Amos to bring justice and to bring the nations into the fold of God. But man, Jesus is inverting that pyramid. And so the genealogy tells us where Jesus is from. But the baptism we're going to look at now is going to tell us where Jesus is going and who he's taking with him. So the first part, we're encouraged that our story can be inverted to write a new story. Know that we can also be encouraged in our identity. That's part two. And the question I want to sit with is, why was Jesus baptized? Let me give you a couple short answers as to why I think Jesus was baptized. The first is to be an endorsement of John and the baptism that he was doing, which was a baptism of repentance and readiness. In Matthew and Luke, we get the sense that John had a very clear sense of his identity. I'm the one that's the runway, making the path straight for the advent, the arrival of God's true king. And I am preparing a people that need to have open hearts, open hands, open doors, ready to receive God's king. He was called John the Baptist, and to be honest, this baptism was kind of unprecedented. There was a ritual cleansing that looked a lot like the kind of immersion baptism that we do, but its function in Israel's life was very different. It was a cleansing. It was uh, not just a one and done. It was a ritual cleansing that was a part of their life and renewal. This baptism was a baptism of readiness and repentance. And for Jesus to be baptized by John is to endorse who John was and what John was doing and saying, hey guys, the runway is being built and it's necessary, it's right. The king has come. The second thing Uh, I think is going on when Jesus is getting baptized is to be a model for those coming after him. We get a hint of this in Matthew's gospel to fulfill all righteousness because John was kind of like, dude, why am I baptizing you? My whole identity is to pave the way for you and I'm supposed to baptize you. But I think that there's enough there to say that Jesus was being a model of all those who would come after him. That's part of his inversion of the pyramid. But I think Luke's primary reasoning in the story that he's telling is this. To affirm his anointing by God. We see a lot of this um, mixed into that account that we just read in Luke chapter 3. First, you see the dove. The dove descending. And this is the Holy Spirit of God alighting on the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And what's powerful about this image that I think Luke is playing with 
is that the royal kings and Caesars, it was thought that they were um, anointed or inaugurated by uh, birds, an eagle or a war hawk. But for Jesus, his anointing is of a dove. And Bible readers will know that it was a dove with Noah and a dove that David cries out in his Psalms to find peace and a refuge and newness that's happening. It wasn't a war hawk. It was a dove symbolizing something new taking shape with this new kind of king. So you have the Holy Spirit, the Son, and then the voice of the Father. You have this Trinitarian interplay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the voice affirming this anointing. The voice says, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Bible readers hearing this are hearing echoes of, write this down, Psalm 2, 7, and then Genesis 22, 2, and then Isaiah 42, 1, all baked within that phrase, the voice in the heaven, speaking and affirming, this is my guy. You see, Psalm 2, 7 says, you are my son. And it's got this messianic, the anointed king undertones. Then Genesis 22, 2 talks about how this is my one son whom I love. And then Isaiah 42, 1, y'all, this is powerful. It says, this is my servant who I've chosen in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice. You see, if the genealogy told us where Jesus was from, there's something about this baptism telling us, giving us hints to where Jesus is going and the future that he is blazing for those who are going to fan out into the pyramid of God's family that includes all people being found in the family of God where he brings justice and life and the reign of God in their midst. This is so crucial that Jesus hears this voice because as God's anointed king, he is entering into a hostile world that has their own expectations of who he should be and what he should do. And when those expectations get unmet, he's met with opposition and violence and threat and it's so important, I believe, and you see this because the next place in Luke's story he goes is into the wilderness to hear all this temptation, all this competing voices. I think Luke wants us to see that this voice, the voice of the Father, is the one that's echoing in his heart and in his head. And I submit to you that you have got to tune in to the voice of the Father, to remind you of who you are. Do you know that voice and what it sounds like? Because if you're like me, you probably hear all the wrong voices and they are getting way too much radio play. The voice that says you're no good. The voice that says you'll never measure up. The voice that says who do you think you are that you can do this or that or change this or change that? You can't invert that pyramid. You can't speak this way. You can't do that. You keep doing the same thing. 
Would we be a people that know how to discern and tune in to the voice of the one that calls us the beloved? Would we tune in to the voice that reminds us that we are more than what we do because who we are is made in the image of God? Would we be reminded that our value is more than what we can contribute when the world seeks to slot us and tear us down or rank us? Would we tune into the voice that says, you are worth more than what you have, so rest easy in the arms of the Father? Henry Nouwen is one who has done a great work in allowing me to dare to believe that what God says of Jesus that this is my beloved son in whom I love and whom I take great delight. Henry Nouwen has done great work in daring us to believe that if it's true of Jesus, it's true of us. Because if we are in Christ, the New Testament tells us we're co-heirs with Christ, that we are adopted as sons of the same father that spoke to Jesus at his baptism. And if we have those words, those exact words even, ringing in our heads and hearts, what might this hostile world throw at us that takes us out of the embrace of God and who we are as our truest self? Henry Nouwen says this, If you know you are beloved, you can live with an enormous amount of success and an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity. Because your identity is that you are the beloved. If we are in Christ, we have the divine yes to know beyond the shadow of a doubt and in spite of all those other voices that you and I are beloved children. I love in Luke's account of the baptism that he tells us it happened while Jesus was praying. Did you catch that? It happened while Jesus was praying. I think there's some private moment here that we get a glimpse inside the heart of God in the Trinity of this love and encouragement. And I love that this was not just for Jesus, it was also for us. I want to read you another quote, this time from Father Greg Boyle, who started Homeboy Industries, the largest gang intervention program ministries in the world. It's in Los Angeles. Amy had an opportunity to visit there. We've read his books. We've admired his ministry from afar. And I love that so much of his work is wrapped up in dragging these gang members into the embrace of God because they have been for too long dictated by stories in their pyramid of abuse and abandonment and violence. And they need to hear the voice of the beloved showing them their worth. So Greg Boyle writes this. It's about funneling ourselves into a central place. Our choice is not to focus on the narrow, but to narrow our focus. The gate that leads to life is not about restriction at all. It is about an entry into the expansive. There is a vastness in knowing you are a son or daughter worth having. 
We see our plenitude in God's own expansive view of us, and we marinate in this. What would it look like to narrow your focus, to narrow your sense of identity, and to be encouraged that you are a son or daughter worth having? How might you tune more and more into the plenitude of God's own expansive view of you? And perhaps most importantly, how are you going to marinate in that truth this week? Which leads me to my second big idea. If you are in Christ, you cannot outbelieve your belovedness. You cannot run it. You cannot believe it. You can't even truthfully undo it. For if we are in Christ, nothing can separate us, Romans 8.1, of the love of God. Now, that is some belovedness. I want to close with a story about a recovery of an identity. An identity that this person did not even become aware of until his 60s. It's a story about the Reverend J. Spates. J. Spates is an interfaith pastor in Maryland, and he had spent a lot of his life wondering about his story, his genealogy, where he had come from, where his family tree went. So, in his mid-60s, he did what a lot of you guys did, and he sent off his DNA to be tested to fill in that family tree. And he got his results back, and he almost couldn't believe what he saw. He saw that he had a link to a distant cousin that's a descendant of the royal line in the West African nation of Benin. You might be a little skeptical if you get that email back or that results in the package back that says royal blood. So what he did was he began to kind of research further and make sure that these connections really were what they said they were. So he hosted someone that had some connections here in the States. And eventually that put him into contact with this person and that person and this person until he started getting cell phones, putting him into contact with kings and queens. And all of this came to a head with a text at 4 a.m. one morning. A text that he had to read over and over again until he finally leaned over to his wife and he said, I am a prince. He was a prince. It was true. This put him on a trajectory toward a homecoming to Benin. He arrived a 36-hour journey. He had never been before. He gets there and he sees loads of people dressed up, speaking, singing, welcoming. And he's like, whoa, what's all this for? And they said, it's for you. It's a royal homecoming. He could barely take it all in. But he didn't have a moment to because they rushed him off to Prince School to show him how they do what they do. That he could get uh, uh, steeped in the royal uh, line and temptation and to fill in that pyramid, if you will. It was a mixed bag, as you might imagine, as he's taking in all of this information. It was a mixed bag, especially because where he was in Benin was one of the hot spots 
of the slave trade. And he was having a hard time coming to grips with that connective tissue in his genealogy that brought him and his people from that West African nation to the new nation in chains. One of his visits, he recounts, and you can read this in a really wonderful article in the Washington Post, but he recounts his visit to a site where they believed was the tree of forgetting. It was near that slave port. And slaves, so long ago, before they became slaves, of course, they're human beings. They're human beings through and through, but they underwent this process of walking around up to nine times in a circle around the tree of forgetting. And with each circle, they were trying to shed that genealogy, shedding that identity, that family they knew they would never see again. And the pain and the heartbreak and the terror and the anger of leaving this life against your will and the horror and um, wickedness of this slave trade. He visited that site now as a prince. And instead of walking those circles in forgetting, he walked that tree in reverse of a sort of renewal. And of course, it could never undo or renew all of the pain and trauma of his genealogy. But it did something, a small thing, for his identity. He says that as he walked nine times around that tree, he felt anger that his father and grandfather and all of those others never knew where they had come from. He felt anger at the lost generations of those people treated less than human, subhuman, brought against their will. He felt anger. He felt hurt at how many unknown names didn't get recorded in the genealogy. But eventually that hurt and anger also mixed in some kind of healing. Some kind of healing knowing that perhaps in his own story and in his own way, God was putting something back together. You see, he was also given not just a title, but a new name. And the name that they gave him was this, the child who came back. For Jay Spates, he had a dramatic recovery of his identity as a child. A child that had come back to his home. So, what about us? Our story thus far doesn't have to dictate the whole story moving forward. We can invert the pyramid moving forward for those who come after us, how we speak and live our lives. And more than that, remember that you are beloved, that you are a beloved child, and you cannot outbelieve your belovedness. So may you go forward as beloved 
and as one who remakes the story as we look back to the king who came and as we look forward to the king who will come again to renew all things. Amen.